rain or shine is the phrase that we so often use um, to tell somebody what? That, that you mean to follow through, right? Now, I didn't think beforehand that the fact that we might be rescheduling a work day because of rain uh, in the next few weeks. But typically, when you want somebody to know that I'm going to be there to help tomorrow, rain or shine, that's, that's your way of saying uh, I'm, I'm set. No matter what the circumstances are, we're going to follow through with this. We're going we're gonna to do this. Coincidentally, in Genesis, in our passage this morning, the rain has stopped. It has stopped for a good while now, but the floods have also subsided. God, in his wrath, did something totally unprecedented in the flood. But he's also preserved this small family. Now, for the reader of Genesis, you, you know about, just consider this, if you're reading, just if you started in Genesis, you only know about eight chapters of what is this God like? What, what's he really like? But the flood was so extreme that it brings up questions. What's God's next move? After that, what's he going to do next? What's he going to do with Noah and his family now? And his answer comes in the form of blessing and a covenant that sends a message to all of creation and all of humanity, rain or shine. The plans of God to glorify himself by saving a people to dwell with will prevail. If we are ever in a place where we think his judgment or seeming harshness gets in the way of his plan, we're mistaken. If under the cloud of suffering we can't see him working, don't fear. He's not letting up on rescuing. If we think the growing wickedness of our culture or the opposition against us is a hindrance to God, we underestimate him and his ability to see things through to completion. Rain or shine, flood or post-flood, Adam or Noah, he will show up and will keep his commitment to bring forth a serpent crusher and deliverer, and in this case, even from this single small family. So the main, main thing that we want to get at this morning is that by reestablishing his original plans in a deeply broken and violently wicked world, the king of creation shows us why we can hope in his ability to mercifully save us, mercifully save us in the end. So by reestablishing re his original plans inside this deeply broken and violently wicked world, the king of creation then shows us why we can hope in his ability to mercifully save us in the end. Verse 1 says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And that says something very important about God. Just like a few chapters ago it said, And God had favor on Noah. God comes out with a blessing. He blessed Noah and his sons. Noah has just exited the ark and is now on dry ground, and he used some of the animals that God told him to bring with him to offer them to God in worship. How, how could he not bow before God after what he's just seen? The awe and the justice and the power of God, having spent a, an entire year in the ark waiting for the judgment waters to subside. 
We're told that Noah's a righteous man. He acted in faith contrary to the world that was around him. He loves God. He and his family have been now mercifully spared. So he worships right out of the gates. Though God was pleased with that offering at the end of chapter 8, we shouldn't necessarily look at that as God blessing Noah and simply saying, good job, Noah, here's a treat. Rather, this holy and merciful God now is now setting his attention on Noah and his sons to formally bless and commission them in this new world that has been torn down and then recreated, so to speak. That's why his first words, no matter, no matter what they are, should carry the weight of the all-powerful creator who has brought about this new beginning. What he says is actually a little bit surprising to us. Rather than this completely fresh start, we're starting over. Rather than using a different strategy than he had in the beginning, what does God say? It's familiar to us because it's verbatim. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. To anyone reading Genesis, this should be one of those moments that we say, wait a minute. What, what God's doing here, I feel, like, I feel like he doesn't needlessly repeat himself. So I'm, I'm thinking, I'm wondering. And he's doing exactly what you think he's doing. He's referring back to Adam but more importantly, he is taking what was said to Adam and applying it and overlaying it onto Noah. You see, Noah is a sort of new Adam who will carry forward this plan that wasn't, it wasn't disrupted by the flood. It was refocused by the flood. This, this one sentence isn't the only similarity, though. This whole passage, in fact, the whole episode, chapter 8, chapter 9, reflects Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 in very obvious ways, as you'll see here. I couldn't, so you have to look through the color coding. The color coding is just to match things up. But God blessed Adam in the beginning. He blessed him, which is what he does with Noah. And then he gives this commission, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Same, we're same up to this point. That's totally on purpose. Now, the wording gets a little bit different because their world, Adam's world and Noah's world, are a little bit different, but the concept is the same. God tells Adam to subdue, subdue the earth and have dominion over all the living creatures that he's made. Everything that he's made up to that point, man is in authority over them. Similarly, Noah is, is told by God that the, all of creation, all these animals, the fear of you and the dread of you will be upon them. Um, basically saying they're, they're subservient to the authority that man has. So ultimately, God is saying, again, some of the same things. But then in chapter 9, he moves on um, to things that are also very similar to what he says in, uh, in, Gen in Genesis um, chapter 2. He moves on to talking about food. God is gracious. He has provided food for his creatures, particularly man. In the garden, he tells Adam and Eve that you can eat of every tree except this one particular tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. And, and in Genesis 9, he's kind of referring back, I gave you the green plants before. Those are still fair game. Every moving thing that lives shall also be food for you. But he makes one exception. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, 
its blood. So another similarity. But it's important to note that God doesn't equate, or that, that God chooses in this case to, can you go back to the last slide, man? Um, uh, no, I'm sorry, you were right. Okay, um, that he, he, equates, he equates an animal's life with its blood. And that sounds very strange to us, but um, it's very important because if the blood is still in it, don't eat it. Don't savagely treat the life that God has given by eating animals alive. The reason why that's important is, I'm just going to paraphrase what a commentator, Kenneth Matthew, said, is because when, when you find out when Leviticus rolls around and stuff starts to sound very strange, um, and God says to Israel, he's giving the law to Israel, for the life of every creature is in its blood. Now, typically we're like, that doesn't apply to me. That's sacrifices of the Old Testament. But this is why God accepts an animal's blood as atonement, because it serves as a substitute for the animal's life itself. It's a stand-in, a life traded for a life. Obviously, this has massive bearing when it comes to when we come to the point of Christ. That's why we can sing, what can wash away my sin? Nothing except the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God. It's a symbol for his life. A life traded for a life. A life sacrificed to spare sinners. All of this to say that God is setting some very important things up. But it's also to say that Life isn't trivial to God, and nothing in his creation should be destroyed without due consideration. However, none should be treated with more care and more sobriety and more importance than human life. That's where later in Genesis 9 you have God restating his value of mankind, his image bearers. But here's where Noah's world starts to look very different than Adam's. In, in Genesis 1, it's this joyous moment where God decides to create man and woman in his image. And now he's restating that. Man is still in the image of God, except there's something new. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. There was that beautiful moment at the pinnacle of creation but, but now there's been an intruder, so to speak, sin, the devil. And God is, is simply making sure human life is guarded from his own recklessness and sin by establishing these life-preserving standards. He's taking into account that this command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth is going to be a whole lot harder due to human sin. So he reminds Noah, his family, that life is not cheap. In fact, I, I skipped a verse that I don't want to miss because it hammers the, that fact home. And for your lifeblood, if someone, if someone kills a man, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. In the background of this, 
Can you see Cain? Our familiar friend from Genesis 4. The only reason why this is now a part of Noah's new world is because Cain lifted himself up over his brother Abel and he killed him. And that's going to be the reality from, from now on. But also in the future, you can see some of the things like, like uh, seemingly obscure laws in Moses start to make sense. Why, if an ox gores someone, should that ox be stoned? Because, God said, from every beast I will require it and from man. If a man dies at the hand of an ox that has kind of shown a pattern here, not only is the, the owner punished, but also the animal. Because life isn't cheap to God. Life is very valuable, particularly human life. Though he shows here that man's life couldn't be more precious and the taking of a person's life couldn't be more consequential, it's, it's in contrast where, where Cain was protected by God. He says, no one's going no to hurt you. I'm going to put a mark on you because Cain was afraid. But this time he delegates that judicial responsibility to, to man, to others, namely to that person's fellow man. In other words, he's saying, you are your brother's keeper. And if murder takes place, there's no excuse for savage retribution. But rather, here we have the seed forms of government, whom God delegates his authority in order to wield the sword and address unjust murder. Those are in place here to, to bring retribution in a controlled manner, rather than uh, uh, just this reckless payback system, sort of. So can you see God's wisdom there? He knows that Noah is in a different world. And as we'll see next week, the flood actually did nothing to reverse the sinfulness of man, even for blameless Noah. Since that's the case, God is bringing order to this plan and setting parameters that didn't have to be there in Eden. But it shows his commitment to fill the earth with his image bearers to the praise of his glory, even in spite of sin and wickedness. After all these new parameters, God circles back to that familiar statement, be fruitful and multiply. Again, God does not needlessly repeat himself. He's doing that on purpose. He's kind of tying this section together. Be fruitful and multiply. Here's, here's how this kind of takes shape. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's at this point where God makes some amazing, amazing statements. Statements then that take on the form of what is called a covenant. Back before the, the flood in Genesis 6, God told Noah, For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. So he's, he's making a kind of... A, would call it like a pre-promise. He's saying, I will, make, I will make this covenant with you when that time comes. And it seems like here in chapter 9, he's keeping that promise. To, in verse 11, to Noah and his sons. He says, I, before he said, I will establish, now he says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And the question is, what is a covenant? 
When you hear covenant, you may think about marriage as a covenant, a binding commitment before God. That's one version of a covenant. However, when we come to covenants like the one with Noah or David, what we have is something that was it's a little bit less familiar to us, a little bit more familiar to things going on in Israel's world at the time that Moses is writing this to Israel. Remember, Moses is the one writing Genesis, Exodus. He's, he's bringing it to the people before they enter the promised land. Rulers would often make treaties with constituents and bind them with an oath. In return, they would give sanctions if the constituents kept that oath. You can see elements of that in the Mosaic Covenant. When God, as the ruler, gives the Ten Commandments and the law, and then he offers blessing if Israel keeps the law, but curses if they don't. There are some conditions in there. So there's an element of authority in that sort of treaty slash covenant. But there was also another kind of agreement which involved granting property to someone where the ruler or the master, the person in authority, freely gives to the servant and then the master binds himself by an oath in order to follow through with the giving of the land. And that's what you can see in this covenant. God is not giving any requirements here. He's alone in doing the promising. So, so I share that to say this wouldn't have sounded too unfamiliar to Israel uh, we like we know this sort of thing happens. This sort of agreement happens. But the biggest difference is that this time the God of the universe is the one who is obligating himself in ways he doesn't have to for the sake of men and the rest of creation. The story of Noah inclu- includes these first mentions of the word covenant in the Bible, both in chapter 6 and here in chapter 9. But is God making a brand new covenant? We've already seen how similar this story is with the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis 1 and 2, which is why it seems clear that something was already in place in Genesis that's being reestablished here in Genesis 9. So there was no formal like ceremony in Genesis 1 and 2, a setting up of the covenant, but it's clear that Adam and Eve knew that God was in authority that they had assurance of his commitment to sustain them, and they knew that he was benevolent. There was something kind of formalized there. Scholars call that the covenant of creation. It was in place at creation where God established his kingdom. He takes his image bearers, and he puts things in their, their proper order of authority, thus calling it good. That's why this covenant with Noah, where God is recommitting to his creation, And all things is meant to simply assure Noah of what what Adam and Eve already knew about him. That God is benevolent and that he's merciful. That he's also just. So it's something similar to communicate that to Noah and his family. Pastor Steve has been careful to mark out God's mercy throughout Genesis. Starting with the very first sin. And I hope that it's not lost on us this morning that even though, because it's only nine chapters, it's like you could sit down and read Genesis and it was just minutes that you read about Adam and Eve and then you come to Noah. 
But I hope it's not lost on us that even though generations have passed in Genesis, hundreds of years, the fall of Adam and Eve, Cain's murder of Abel, wickedness piled on wickedness, and the just cataclysmic destruction of men and creation. And yet God, even in his judgment, he remains unceasingly merciful and unbendingly committed to make his plan of salvation go through to the praise of his glorious name. The flood was catastrophic, which is enough for anyone reading Genesis to wonder, what now? We get God's answer to the what now question in this section in verses 8 through 17. To sum it up, if you're wondering, what's God's next move? He says, I will remain merciful. Nothing about his commitment to, to his creation has changed because he sent the flood. The flood was necessary for judgment, but that doesn't mean he's abandoned the whole thing. In fact, God makes this, this commitment, this covenant, for our sake as an expression of his mercy. Otherwise, from then on, mankind would, would just be wondering if God was going, is, is he going to do this again? Is he going to wipe us all out again with floodwaters? I, I even sat there this morning uh, looking out our, our uh, living room window. The thunder was rumbling. It was, it was raining pretty hard. And, and I found myself thankful for what we're about to talk about, which is that God is not going to flood the earth again. This I've grown up knowing that this rain is going to stop at some point. We, we all have that kind of in our minds that, oh, this isn't, this isn't going to come and fill the earth with water and destroy everything. Because the king of creation bends to Noah and his sons and says, listen, this will never happen again. And then he uses kids a rainbow to confirm that his promise will hold. He says, I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When, it bring, when, when I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. It's probably fair to say that God didn't create a rainbow for the first time in this moment. But think about what he's doing. A rainbow most often shows itself after the rain. So God seizes that familiar symbol after the largest rainstorm in all of history. And he takes that and he makes it a sign of his promise. Every time a rainbow shows itself, man and creation can breathe a sigh of relief. Not, not just because God didn't send a flood of such a large scale, but because he has mercifully chosen restraint. We, we've already talked about how this, this world that Noah lives in is going to be infected with sin from now on. I'm sure it would, there would come another point where God could say, all right, it's time for another flood because this wickedness has become so deep. But he's choosing to say, I'm not going to do that again. The, the, the task and the commission to Noah is still the same, but is going to have a little bit of a different form. The way that I'm going to choose to deal with man. Does God need help remembering, though? He says, I will remember my covenant. 
a little unsettling, like he's only going to remember when a rainbow shows up. No, rather, remembering means that God will purposefully call something to mind. For example, when he says in Jeremiah 31, 34, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Does that mean he'll have no awareness of our sin? I thought he was all-knowing. Instead, it means he's not going to bring them to mind and let them have sway. So, in a similar way, when God says that he will remember his covenant each time the rainbow appears, he's simply saying, I will always be merciful in this way. Here's the question for you to answer. Has he kept that promise? Has he kept this promise to never again flood the earth? Every time it rains, it stops raining. Even if it's monsoon season in another country and it rains for months, it will stop. And we will see that beautiful sign that we are constantly underneath the mercy of this covenant that God has chosen to make with his creation. That's, that's for every man, for every woman, for every creature. God wants to cement this to say, I'm all powerful. I created the earth. I even recreated it here. I've caused life to flourish. All of that life is a part of my, my rule but I also want that life to know that I am merciful. Especially to sinful men. He restrains his anger and his wrath for, for, what, for our own rebellion. Now earlier we noted lots of similarities in how God is purposely drawing a tie between Adam and Noah. But do you see a little bit of a pattern starting to form? Think back to Genesis 1 and 2. God spoke and he created. He was the undisputed ruler of the world. Adam and Eve were there. Everything was declared good. But when we come to the flood, we might be tempted to think, well, surely God's saying that wasn't good. The plan didn't work. Let's chuck it out. Let's start over. When in, re in reality, nothing was wrong with the initial plan. Nothing was or ever will be wrong with God being the king. Adam, who was created to love and worship God, being his servant, was fittingly tasked with spreading God's glory all over the earth with more image bearers. That was good. That was right. That was intentional. As was this beautiful creation that God willingly cursed due to Adam's sin. It's all too common for us to come to, to the flood story and even this chapter right after and to think that this is some sort of divine do-over. Like God is somehow picking up the pieces and trying to replicate things, but it doesn't look the same, and he's trying to figure out what went wrong in the first place. Nothing was wrong with the plan. The flood was not a hitch or a bump in the road. Listen, God Pay attention. God is establishing a redemptive pattern. He's establishing a pattern, one that we must pick up on if we're going to grasp the rest of Genesis or, in fact, the rest of our Bibles. The pattern is this, new life through a new Adam in a new creation. New life through a new Adam in a new creation. 
You can see this over and over again, particularly, again, with these similarities between Adam and Noah. We talked about the covenant of creation. Noah is now under a covenant with Noah. Noah functions as an Adam. There's new life that has happened. He's emerged from the flood, him and his family. And now they're in this new world that is, is kind of spoken over by God. Be fruitful and multiply this, this new earth, just, just like I asked Adam to do. Noah saw the judgment of God against countless people in all of creation, but he and his family are this new people in a new land who are part of the next chapter of God's plan to save. And now remember who Genesis was written to. Genesis was written to the nation of Israel. Israel is called God's son in scripture. They just came out of slavery. They passed through the plagues of Egypt the waters of the Red Sea where God judged wicked Egypt. They also came through the wilderness where an entire generation died because of their hardness of heart and their idolatry. But out emerges this new people who are on the doorstep of a new land, the promised land, a sort of new creation, a new Eden. And they are included in the next chapter of God's plan to save. After lots happens in Israel's history, like the judgment of being exiled and the silence of God's prophets, out emerges another who bears the title, Second Adam, Jesus. This new Adam was sent to take upon himself the judgment of God and then re-emerge from the dead so that he could crush the head of the ancient serpent, Satan, leading a new people triumphantly into a newly created and heaven, heaven and earth. We can't understand what Jesus has come to do if we don't understand the pattern that God is setting up here with Noah. What God is doing with Noah couldn't be more foundational. If you want to get a sneak peek into what's coming, what plans the Almighty God has for this world that though he wiped it out, sin remains, just look. I'm commissioning Noah, just like I commissioned Adam, which means this is how I do things. So look, look for another Adam to get the job done. As we come back to the Noah story after the flood, you see just how merciful God has been to offer this second, full-fledged second chance to humanity. In a very bad way, Noah is not in Kansas anymore. He is still like Adam in so many ways. There was a time before murder was a reality, before it was said that sin is crouching at the door ready to take over, before man's wickedness incited God's just wrath and sending a flood. But unfortunately, those days are gone. Now Noah is vulnerable in every, in every sort of way when it comes to carrying out God's plan of being fruitful and multiplying in spite, but, but yet in spite of the new conditions of humanity, what is God communicating? What is he telling us? In choosing to associate Noah with Adam, it's still clear that there is hope for the serpent-crushing seed of the woman to still come. He will be faithful to that promise, rain or shine. Back in the, uh, the chapter of genealogies, it was said of Noah 
when he was born. When Lamech, his father, had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. It turns out that Noah couldn't accomplish this, as we'll see next week. But it is through his line, through his son Shem, that Jesus would come, who would finally lift that curse that was brought almost at the very beginning. Now, we live in a in the same murderous, broken, sickly painful and sin-filled world, don't we? The questions many of us have asked at different times go something like this. Can, can God really work with that? Can he really make good from this mess or just this mess that I'm in right now or just my mess? Consider the fact that God himself, in accordance with his justice, wipes out the whole of mankind, and yet in his mercy he has favor on one man and his family. Rather than simply starting over, he provides protection and provision and mercy for this family living in a broken world. And through that family, he would eventually accomplish the salvation of the world through his son, Jesus Christ. Can he not make good from disaster? Can he not bring salvation through this dark path of judgment? Is God dissuaded, hindered, thwarted by the hardest things going on in your life? When Job was confronted with the sovereign Lord and his power, his wisdom, he cries out, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who else can it be said that you can do all things except Yahweh, the one true God? Who else can it be said of that no purpose that he sets out to accomplish can be thwarted but the Lord of all creation? Now, I love, I love Romans 8.28. We often read Romans 8.28 just as, as this verse of comfort. It is, it is a deep comfort to us. But consider it also as a proclamation of the power of our God and risen Lord Jesus. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Church, name, name someone else who can take all of your illness, all of your past, Every disaster, every hardship and crippling difficulty, all of this world's chaos and sin and delusions, and can bend them to his perfect will, which most certainly will turn out for your good. That's what Genesis is all about. It's laying this, this foundation so that Israel looks back when they're scared about entering the promised land and says, oh, Yahweh, you are unrivaled in power and mercy and justice and steadfast love. And we can trust you. You will lead us through every adversity and difficulty and deliver us. You'll take us to that promised land. But Genesis has also laid a foundation for us to look back 
at God's dealings with this wicked world and with Noah and to say, King Jesus, you are unrivaled in power and mercy and justice. You are in the business of turning calamity and difficulty into blessing, just as you have turned your own death into life for us. You are seated in the heavens doing all that you please and laughing at the schemes of the nations like we heard last week. You are making your enemies your footstool. You are just in your judgments and wise in your ways. Your ability to work your perfect and good will in our lives right now is our hope and our foundation as the people of God. If we don't have that, we don't have much of anything. But if we do have that, we have every reason to hope. That's why the psalmist refers to God as, and it's a vivid picture, a rock. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield and the horn of my salvation. He compares them to a stronghold. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock for our feet, for our hope, except our God? The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock and exalted, the God of my salvation. Friends, Jesus is a rock of refuge, is he not? He is precisely because he is mighty to accomplish his plans, even if he starts with this one man and his family. Not only is he a rock, a reliable source of strength for us, but he is filled with compassion towards you. You may read the covenant and the rainbow in verse 8 to 17 and think, okay, so God is making this promise to all of humanity, but what does it have to say about me as a follower of Jesus Christ? That's very broad, and everybody benefits from that. I'm thankful for that. But isn't God uniquely dedicated to his people? Well, listen to what the prophet Isaiah says. He's talking about the new covenant, which we'll talk about again in a moment, that we enjoy in Christ. Listen to what he compares it with. This, this future new covenant, is like the days of Noah to me. This is God speaking. As I swore that the waters of Noah should be no more, should no more go over the earth, so just like that, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Just like God set a rainbow reminder of his mercy over the earth in Genesis 9, so has he put over us for one re- this, this proclamation of mercy for one reason and one reason only. We are in Christ. We are God's forever. He, we are his forever. We, are, we belong to him forever. And just like he blanketed the earth with this promise never to flood the earth again, he has blanketed us with assurance, I will be merciful and compassionate to you. I will not let my steadfast love depart from you. My covenant of peace with you in Christ is going nowhere. 
even though the mountains may depart, even though the hills be removed, even though he will one day judge the earth, his commitment to us is going nowhere. As sure as that rainbow will come after a storm and remind us of his mercy, his covenant with us will never be removed. 